Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And uh, if you've got a church Bible, we're going to be on page 1052, uh, Luke 18. And just as you turn that up, I'm going to use some of the words of Psalm 130 that we had read before as a prayer. The psalmist writes, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So Father, with the psalmist, our soul waits on you, and in your word we put our trust, and pray, Father, that you would speak to us by your spirit, for the sake of your son. Amen. Well, the third of uh, some parables from Luke that we've been looking at over the last uh, few weeks, and uh, Luke chapter 18, and uh, I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think that uh, free speech protects one of the things that's enormously precious Uh, in any democratic society, and that is satire. Uh, We take it for granted in the UK that when political incompetence and corruption seems to be institutionalised, satire flourishes and politicians are humbled by a few choice words. It is not so throughout the world. Despots hate satire, so they crush it ruthlessly. The citizen who dares to deflate the pomposity of a tyrant with a well-judged satirical punch will feel more than sharp words by way of response. So, by way of example, there is the remarkable Syrian cartoonist Ali Farzat, and he's worth Googling to see his work. Uh, He was beaten to a pulp by President Assad's henchmen because the regime didn't take kindly to his work. But as Farzat himself put it, of all the arts, cartoons stand on the front line against dictators. 
Of all the arts, cartoons stand on the front line against dictators. Because, you see, without satire, leaders like Hassad can afford to live in an unreality of their own making. Blind to their own corruption. They see the world as they want to. Now, of course, in a police state, the people have to comply with that kind of vision out of fear. But in a democracy like ours, well, satire is for the people and the politicians what glasses are to the seriously short-sighted. If you get the joke, suddenly you see the world as it really is. Now, surprising as it might seem, Jesus was a first-century satirist second to none. On the surface level, he told stories that seemed simple enough, tales of sheep and and farming and feasting, pictures from a first-century peasant culture that seemed light years away from our modern and supposedly sophisticated society. And yet there's something that is universal about story, as we've seen over the last few weeks. Whatever the setting, there's something about story that seems to transcend space and time and speak to us. And that was never more so than with the stories of Jesus. So... Chapter 18, two men went up to a temple to pray. To us, it sounds like the opening of a joke. And in a sense, it is because there is humor here. But if you get the joke, it is likely to leave you as unsettled as it is amused. Two men went up to the temple, the place of worship, the place of sacrifice, the place where the God who is really there makes himself known and makes himself knowable. And the two men were, well, Jesus sketches a couple of Dickensian caricatures that help us to see into our own hearts. See, one's a Pharisee. Think religious, think moral, think respectable. Now, of course, for us, the term has become almost synonymous with self-righteous hypocrisy. But for first century listeners, the connotations would be somewhat more nuanced. Doubtless, there were many Pharisees who were corrupt, but there were many also who were commendable. They were admired, popular, influential. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And one was, what, a a graduate? Professional? A teacher? Someone spiritual, honest, reputable? Two men went to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And in the first century, tax collectors were as despised the profession as it was possible to imagine. In the pay of the occupying Roman power, tax collectors were seen as compromised and corrupt, colluding with the enemy. They were hated and ostracized. Two men went to pray. One was a hero, and the other was society's whipping boy. City banker. Spence tarnished MP. An illegal immigrant. Two men went to the temple to pray and center stage, verse 11, the Pharisee. And the recorded dialogue is brief but very revealing. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You think as an opening line, it is somewhat surprising, isn't it? You may not pretend to know much about prayer, still less to do much in the way of praying, but there's something about this prayer that doesn't seem quite right, is there? 
It seems more performance than petition. The problem is less about how he prayed and more what he prayed. Praying out loud was a normal part of first century practice. You didn't bow your head in silence. You raised your eyes and spoke. Yet when this man spoke, everything about him, his demeanor, his, his language, his attitude, everything about him smacks of a sickening self-righteous arrogance. And he's the hero of the story. Which is all a bit of a shock, isn't it? For when he speaks, he seems more interested in the verdict of others than the pardon of his God. The stress on I is remarkable. God's mentioned, but very quickly buried. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I get. It's massively egocentric. And of course, it's ridiculous. It is a comic caricature worthy of the best political cartoonists. But as Picasso once commented, commented, art, even the art of a caricaturist, Art is the lie that helps us to see the truth. And the truth is, the human heart can be remarkably arrogant, self-obsessed and proud. It's that tiresome person that you meet in Freshers' Week who can talk little else other than their five A-stars at A-level and their credible wealthy family or, or those irritating families Those irritating families who can talk nothing else apart from their children's incredible achievement, all written up for prosperity in their self-promoting Christmas letter. We get one every year which is so beyond caricature, it's incredible. As a family, we look forward to it because it's so entertaining. (laughs) Every child has passed grade eight in every instrument. Or maybe it's not the Christmas letter, maybe it's something like The Apprentice. If that gives you any kind of insight into the world of business, then it seems that success requires a kind of ruthless, self-confident, self-promoting arrogance. So runs the joke about having a conversation with the self-obsessed. So, that's enough about me. What about you? What do you think about me? But before the camera moves from the front of the temple to the back, where verse 13, the tax collector is standing at a distance, it's it's worth just thinking a little bit more about the Pharisees' words. Because in just two lines, Jesus paints a picture of the sort of religious misunderstanding that plagues every age and every religion apart from Christianity. For every age... And every religion imagines that confidence before God is grounded upon relative merit and moral performance. I thank you, verse 11, that I'm not like other men. Because if you point your finger in the right place, you are always going to look good, aren't you? Always. It is the universal comfort of all who acknowledge, well, I'm not perfect. Daily Mail readers are no more guilty than the readers of The Guardian. It is just that their moral pariahs are different. It is a trait as prevalent amongst churchgoers as clubgoers. And I'm ashamed to say that Christian speakers are not exempt either. 
I thank you that I'm not like other speakers. The manipulative, the egomaniacs, the superficial, or even like this guy who doesn't know one end of the Bible from the other. (laughs) At least it's not the vicar sitting there. (laughs) See, point your finger at the right person and you are always going to look better. Always. And before the God who is there, our confidence is grounded in what? Our relative merit, because we're not like him or her or them, that, that we're okay? Is that what Christianity is all about? Interestingly, there's, there's more to our hero's case, actually, than his relative merit. His plea is not just there's an absence of bad in his life, but rather that there's an abundance of what is good. His confidence is is not just grounded in his relative merit, but his moral performance, verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. This was self-denial and personal generosity on a grand scale. In the Old Testament, believers were only required to fast once a year. This guy's skipping meals twice a week. In the Old Testament, you were expected to tithe grain, wine, and oil, and yet this guy is giving a tithe of all he gets. You think if he had been a Hollywood celebrity, he'd have launched a new spiritually shaped diet and a generous philanthropic foundation. And before God, before God, our confidence is what? Our moral goodness? Our self denial? Our generosity? Certainly most people think that Christianity is about not doing bad things and trying to do good things. And because I'm better than him or her or them, that I'll be okay. Is that what Jesus thinks? Well, verse 13, the tax collector, this this compromised, corrupt, condemned man, hated, vilified, and on the margins of society, he did what? He stood at a distance. You get the sense that whilst the Pharisee was right up at the front, this guy had kind of slipped in the back in the hope that nobody would notice him. And when he came to pray, he did what? He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast as he spoke, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think as a picture, it kind of carries you to both familiar and unfamiliar worlds. You think the familiar is the scene of childhood, isn't it? You know, you've done wrong and you've been found out and you're shamefaced standing before your parents and your cheeks are burning and your head is bowed and your guilt is inescapable. And at first you denied it. And then you blamed your sister. But actually her defense compounded your guilt rather than removing it. So then you blamed the dog. And when his big brown eyes looked up at you and then at your parents, you knew all hope was gone. And your guilt was as obvious as the nose on your face. Do you get better hiding guilt and dodging the consequences as you get older? But every now and then reality intrudes and our our guilt is exposed. And whatever the blame and the bluster and the excuses, we know that what we need is forgiveness.
But if the head bowed shame is, is familiar, then the chest beating cry is less so. Certainly it's not something my kids have generally done. To beat your chest in a Middle Eastern peasant culture was a symbol of extreme anguish. It was an acknowledgement that the situation you faced was desperate and deep. So that when the man speaks, his words are as honest as they are brief. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I feel that at this point in Jesus' story, everyone holds their breath, don't they? As we've seen over the last few weeks, it's very hard to recover the shock of the first hearing. But remember, this short story contrasts society's hero, if you like, and the local whipping boy. And in but a few words, all has been laid bare, hypocrisy exposed, brokenness uncovered, and Jesus' staggering verdict comes in verse 14. I tell you that this man, this man who colluded with Israel's hated enemies, this man who extorted his fellow countrymen, unjustly pocketing his own share of the revenue before he passed on what was necessary to the Romans, this man who didn't only steal other people's money, but in all likelihood also stole other people's wives, this compromised, corrupt adulterer went home in the right with God. I tell you this man, this man who's blown it big time, blown it in almost every level, corrupt in the workplace and compromised in the bedroom, this man went home right with God. And so you think there is hope. There is hope for people like us. For here is the truth that is an eternal balm to your soul the first time you heard it. And no less sweet the thousandth. Francis Spufford puts it like this. He said, Jesus is never disgusted. He never says that anything, anyone is too dirty to be touched. That anyone is too lost to be found. Even in situations where there seems to be no grounds for human hope, he will not agree that hope is gone beyond recall. Wreckage may be written into the logic of the world, but he will not agree that that is all there is. He says, More can be mended. Than you fear. Much more can be mended than you know. And yet, if this parable promises hope, in all likelihood for its first listeners, it also provoked anger. For Jesus has just humbled their hero and he has exalted society's whipping boy. And you're left thinking that what Jesus seems to be saying isn't just shocking, it's profoundly unjust. How could this man who colluded with Israel's hated enemies, this man who extorted his fellow countrymen, this man who didn't just steal other people's money, but in all likelihood their wives too, how could this compromised, corrupt adulterer be okay with God? How? Doesn't any of the stuff he did matter? Isn't being good necessary? Doesn't justice count? To which, of course, Jesus would say, 
what we do and don't do is of eternal significance. That being good is important to a standard by which we can scarcely imagine. And the importance of justice. The importance of justice is that God cannot excuse any wrongdoing. Neither this tax collector's nor mine. Which is why the tax collector prays as he does. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Because the tax collector is in the temple. It is the place of sacrifice. And what he prays literally is, God be propitious to me. A technical sacrificial term. But in other words, what he's saying is, may the sacrifice of this place count for me. The good required I have not done. The debt I have I cannot pay. The penalty required I cannot meet. So may the sacrifice in this place count for me. Now, of course, the sacrifices in the temple were only ever pictures. Pictures for how justice and forgiveness could be secured. The sacrifice in the temple pointed ultimately to the sacrifice not of an animal but of a man. The God-man Jesus Christ who forgives my guilt and proves his justice through his death on the cross. Charles Colson was a special counsel advisor to President Richard Nixon, was all wrapped up in the Watergate scandal. He was a graduate, a lawyer. He worked at the very top of the political system in the States. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. Uh, He was implicated in the Watergate scandal and eventually he was convicted and imprisoned for obstructing justice. From the exalted status of the president's advisor, Colson was publicly humbled as an inmate in in the American prison system. And as many of you will know, he died a couple of years ago. He he became a Christian after the Watergate experience and he devoted much of his life to prison reform. And in one of his many books, he talks about visiting a prison in Brazil, a notorious prison, uh, back in 1990, where they were seeking to implement something called restorative justice. And Colson writes this. One of the inmates asked me if I would like to see the punishment cells where people in this old prison had been kept as a form of torture. He told me that there was one inmate in one punishment cell. I assured him that I would like to do this. He paused and asked again if I was certain I was ready. I was a bit offended. Hadn't I been in solitary confinement and segregation cells in Perm Camp 35 in Russia and some of the worst holes in the world? Of course, I said impatiently, let's go. The inmate led me down a long corridor with solid steel and some barred doors on either side until we came to the end where there was one solid steel door locked. The inmate slowly took out his keys and turned the lock. Then he opened the slot, looked inside, turned to me and said, yes, he's in there. Are you sure you want to go in? By now, I was thoroughly impatient. Of course, open the door. As he swung open the door, I could see a table with a lamp on it and some books. And then as I turned and walked into the cell, I looked to the right, and there on the wall was a beautifully hand-carved crucifix, Christ hanging on the cross. And the inmate turned to me and said, 
That's him. That's the inmate here in solitary. He's doing the time for us. See, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. May this sacrifice count for me. Now, of course, the best literary satire lodges in your mind like a stone in your shoe. And so it is with this simple story that Jesus told. For even as you finish the story, there's an unsettling sense that the story hasn't finished with you. You see, it's easy to read this story and to be appalled at the self-righteous, self-promoting arrogance of this Pharisee. Here is a man who seems to embody all that we hate about religion and religious people. Not least intolerance and moral superiority. How can someone be so self-righteous and blind? And so you easily find yourself echoing some rather familiar words. God, I thank you that I'm not like this terrible caricature of religious people. And the words have barely left your lips before you find that you have unwittingly moved yourself from the public gallery to the dock. Of course, once you realize the way Jesus' story seemingly implicates us and exposes our guilt, you find yourself, or at least I do, looking for a third character in the story. Someone who will get me off the hook. That's what I find myself doing. For in my own mind, I am neither the self-righteous Pharisee nor the self-defying tax collector. Or otherwise put, I'm not pretending to be perfect, but I'm basically not a bad person. But look as long as you like and you will only find a cast of two in this story. And that's for a reason. Jesus is clear. There are only two options for any of us. Either we trust in ourselves that we are good enough. Or we acknowledge our wrong and pray that God will make Jesus' death count for us. See, why did Jesus tell this story, verse 9? To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. See, that's the bottom line. We can either trust in ourselves or we can trust in Christ. And trusting in ourselves is never going to work. Relative merit and moral performance is never enough. Or as Jesus puts it at the end of this story, the end of verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Which is why the only alternative is so important for all of us. Trust in yourself, Jesus says. You will be humbled. Trust in Christ. Humble yourself as this man did. Trust in Christ and you will find mercy. Mercy for the undeserving. Mercy that doesn't merely acquit, acquit but actually restores. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, let's pray, shall we? The psalmist says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? 
but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Thank you, Father, for your astonishing mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, our hearts sing, how great, how great is our God. Amen.